0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Let's read together Romans 8, 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In Romans 7 and 8, among other things, Paul is comparing two sorts of suffering. We know in this life that suffering is an inevitability. But in chapter 7, there is a suffering which is not inevitable. Sinful suffering. It's something which we cause and which arises within us. So look over in chapter 7. Verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Some conceptions, popular and academic, of Christian experience they fail to distinguish these two kinds of suffering between the suffering experienced due to sin and the prayerful groanings that are compared to childbirth so Romans 7 is the depiction of sin Romans 8 the depiction of a suffering they're still suffering but it's connected to the redemption of all things and so in 8:26 in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Here is apparent suffering that God participates in. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The suffering in seven is a complete futility, which gives rise to a living death, while the suffering in eight is joyful, this birth pangs, it's hope-filled, it's an experience of a new form of human subjectivity, no longer defined by the old order of oppression and suffering. And so Paul spends most of chapter 7 describing this form of suffering that is definitive In its agony, its alienating agony, the suffering is the product of being separated from the love of God. That is, it's possible in sin to be separated from the love of God apart from the remedy of life in the spirit, which is the depiction in 8. This suffering reduces one in 7.24 to complete wretchedness and death. Paul cries out, Who will rescue me from this body of death? There is suffering in chapter 8, but in light of the hope of glory, this suffering is in no way definitive of a person's life. Paul suggests in verse 17, it's not even worth comparing to the glory, the hope of glory. And it is not a suffering of death, but it's likened to labor pain, to Giving birth, that the creation itself is groaning as in travail, as in the pains of labor. Paul goes so far as to list in chapter 8 the possible sufferings of the Christian. Look at verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. But the point is that unlike sinful suffering. This suffering cannot separate from the love of God. So there is a suffering that you do not survive. That is death dealing. But in chapter 8, no matter the type of suffering or its source. You know, he lists there in the following verses. Whether death or life or angels. In verse 38 to 39. Principalities. Present and future. Powers. Height. Depth. Created thing. None of these things, then, none of this sort of suffering is able to separate us from the love of God. It's a different order of suffering. And confusing the two forms of suffering, I think, results in a practical misunderstanding of the tenor. You know, what is the Christian life? There are some things we can avoid in the Christian life. There is a suffering we can avoid. And a misunderstanding of both suffering and redemption results from mixing these two things. Ultimately, I think it results in a misunderstanding of God. And this is true at both a popular and academic level. There's a kind of failure to delineate the forms of suffering. And it results that some people valorize. They think that you know, suffering per se is redemptive. Such that it can be presumed one must continually contend with poverty of spirit, with depression, with darkness, maybe even abuse and oppression. And in that way they become spiritual. And the compounding of the problem of mental illness, I saw this both in Japan and here, that people suffer from mental illness And it does them no good to to say, oh, this is caused by God, or this is a result of spiritual suffering. You know, well-meaning Christians just compound the problem. Maybe even more troubling, though, is that the best of theologians are guilty of the same error. And in both instances, there's a tendency towards sacralizing suffering. Like suffering is a good thing. As if suffering per se is redemptive. Paul even in chapter 8 when he's talking about suffering. He uses the word futile. That the creation has been subjected to this futility. Now I first encountered this actually in Japan. There's a theologian there. Kazo Kitamori. He was one of the famous theologians in Japan. And he wrote a book called The Pain of God. That is, he says, well, human pain and God's pain, oh, we participate in who who God is through suffering. By being in pain, we experience who God is. It's a kind of sensibility that is there in Japan that suffering in some way, pain and suffering are thought to be inherently meaningful. They're not inherently meaningful. I'm not saying we can't learn things from suffering, but per se, they are not from God. They're not meaningful per se. And I think this is a misunderstanding of the Bible, and especially here in Romans, where Paul is speaking about these two kinds of suffering. You know, the suffering of creation. It's still a futility. And so maybe I was sensitized to this, but then I've heard it here too, that people describing suffering, I think they're repeating this kind of error. The reason I'm talking about this this morning, I'm teaching a class right at the moment on the Holy Spirit, and I've chosen a book, and I like the book for the most part. It's a good book, you know, it's actually dealing with the role of the Holy Spirit, a lot of focus on Romans chapter 8. But the woman who wrote it, a British theologian, I realized, oh she's doing the same thing as Japanese theologians or German theologians. Sarah Coakley, she talks about productive suffering, a productive or empowering form of pain. She talks about John of the Cross, one of the early theologians. According to Coakley, it's that physical and spiritual pain Are inexorably welded together. And the subjective experience, whatever happens to him neurologically or physiologically, is of a progressive transformation into God. That is what she's describing. Oh, the way you grow, it inevitably involves pain. Now, we might agree, oh, suffering is a kind of, you know, we're human. It's just tied to human experience. Maybe it's just tied to Christian experience. But the error is to speak of it as a positive necessity. Integral to salvation and Christian maturity. And so Coakley's depiction of being vulnerable and open to God, it always involves suffering. And so this is true of her picture of prayer. That contemplative prayer and her peculiar attachment to suffering it bears the mark she's not delineated between Romans 7 and Romans 8, between the two kinds of suffering that Paul is describing. And maybe sometimes I agree with her, the description of Christian suffering. Oh, I'm familiar with that. But the question concerns the integral necessity of it, the quality of the suffering, the fact there's very little, you know, how do we start in the Christian life? Can we depend upon joy? peace, you know, resting in God. I think we can. I think that's our point of departure is this peace and presence of God and that's the place from which we begin. And yet suffering seems to be for her, that's the point of departure into the deeper Christian life. And so I've been teaching this class and suddenly I realized, oh, I'm going to have to completely disagree with this tone or this tenor that she's presenting. And as she makes clear, she's not simply presuming suffering is part of growth, but she's positing a necessary dereliction, you know, the, on the order that caused Christ on the cross to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, what is that cry of Christ on the cross? Has God truly forsaken him? And of course Christ is quoting the psalm. In which the psalm depicts. Even though we may seem to have been forsaken. God is still with us. And she says though that every Christian will have to pass through this dereliction of abandonment. Experienced by Christ. I'm quoting her. If Christ's spirit is that which is breathed out of his scarred body then this fire of purgation, an incandescent terror, in the words of T.S. Eliot, must be allowed for along with the refreshment of the comforting dove. She concludes by asking, could it be that the acceptance, she calls it Christomorphic pain, is part and parcel of the full acceptance of Trinitarianism? And so she misses. She does not describe the contrast, the means of passage. How do you get from Romans 7 to Romans 8? How do you get from the suffering of sin to life in the Spirit? Well, the way she describes it, she recommends a prayerful life of purgation. And she sees, like St. John of the Cross, she describes a kind of negative pressure causing disturbance deep uneasiness, the highlighting of sin, and even the fear of insanity. In part of my reading about the American frontier, it was religious intensity, religious extremism that has often filled the insane asylums in this country. That religious extremes do indeed cause people to go insane. But I don't think that's the way it should be. But she describes this as part of the, she calls it the death throes of the domineering ego. She equates dark experiential vulnerability. Such as found in Christ's cry of dereliction. She describes that as a kind of dependence on God. Now, strangely, she also sets aside the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, but she describes then in place of a doctrine of creation ex nihilo. There's a kind of dependence on a noetic or a knowing blankness. She calls it that which without there would be nothing at all. And as I was reading this, I was I realized, oh, actually in psychoanalysis, an atheistic psychoanalyst, He describes human personality as arising. He actually references Romans 7, a kind of creation ex nihilo, in which the ego is just a circulation of negation, of negativeness, of nothingness, dependence on next to nothingness. This doesn't overcome the ego. This is the ego in psychoanalysis. Death, nothingness, anxiety this kind of imaginary sinful self. That is, the ego of Romans 7 is not who we really are. That's the one that Paul says, it's no longer I that live because I have been crucified with Christ. The word I there is just the word ego. There is an understanding of ourselves we need to get rid of. And the ego of Romans 7 is, It cannot be overcome by being starved, dissolved, dispossessed, denied. As this defines the very energetics which give it reality. That is this negative understanding of the self. The negative pressure causing disturbance, deep uneasiness, the highlighting of sin. What she calls even the fear of insanity. That is the power of the sinful self. That is the power of the ego. That's not the way you get rid of the ego. It is anxiety, fear, and insanity. That's why we need to be born again, and that's what Paul's describing. Of course, this is not real. Paul says, I have been crucified. You don't lose anything because this I is not real. It's a, a creation of our sinful selves. It's the dynamic of a lie that has got us in its grip. And so the imagined defeat of this ego that I think she's picturing through negation, disturbance, it actually duplicates Paul's description of the substance of the ego. What I'm saying is that people who confuse these two things, they're recommending sin and sinful suffering as the means of redemption. It lends a reality to this domineering ego. That Paul says, this needs crucified, this needs to be undone. In Paul's description, you don't get rid of this lie by engaging in its negative pressure, but by being joined to the truth, by being joined to Christ. And not just her, I'm just using her as an example. There's this whole tradition that the reality of being conformed to Christ, well, we've got to experience the agony, the dereliction of the cross. And they make no distinction between the suffering of Christ and sinful human suffering. She concludes that the all-too-human experiences of anxiety and desolation are indicators of the most powerful and active presence of God. How do you know God's presence? Oh, you experience desolation, dereliction, and negative. No! That's not the presence of God. I fear that this failure to discriminate pictures redemption in the language of Paul's depiction of sin she misses, and I think there are many forms of Christianity, that miss the stark contrast between the subjects of Romans 7 and 8. Look at Romans 7, this I split within himself. He said, the members of my body are colonized by sin. He's in continual agony due to the oppressive orientation to sin. He's deceived. He said, sin deceived me. And this deception is definitive of who he is. This I does not arrive at life in the spirit, you know, through, oh, you need to intensify the struggle. No, the struggle is deadly. It's wretched. It's hopeless. The subject of seven, there is no hope in chapter seven. There is no spirit. There is no prayer. There is no Abba Father. This person is without Christ. And all he has is law, and a desire which has overtaken him in deception. And so this subject is suffering. That's what Paul's describing. But this isn't redemptive suffering. This is deadly suffering. There's some forms of suffering that you don't need to undergo. The intensification of the suffering. That seems to be its natural trajectory, that it gets worse and worse. But no matter how intense this suffering does not produce the Christian subject of chapter 8. So how do you get from chapter 7 to chapter 8? Well, actually, chapter 6. The only way to move from the deadly suffering of 7 to the birth pangs of 8 is through the change of subject that Paul has described in chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. Look there. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And so Paul is telling the Christians, and you know, verse 6, chapter 6 live up to your baptism live up to the fact that you've been joined to the death of Christ. This is the reality about you. Having been joined to him, you have resurrection power that you can walk in newness of life, dependent upon that. They're not joined to the death of Christ through their dereliction or their suffering, but through his. It is not their capacity... Or our capacity to overcome sin. But it is his capacity which enables us to reorder our lives. And so Paul is calling them and calling us to act like who we are. You have been baptized, he says, now live up to that. He calls them to take up a cruciform and resurrected life. Because this is already the reality into which they've been inducted. Look at verses 5 to 6 in chapter 6. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin is the one producing, the body of death is producing the suffering. That's done away with, so that we are no longer to be slaves to sin. The worst kind of suffering that we can experience in this life is that sinful suffering of chapter 7, and we don't have to do that. Their life, our life, is no longer defined by this alienating, oppressive orientation to sin and death. Now, certainly it involves will. We have to will it. We have to practice it. We have to have discipline. I'm not denying any of that. We have to participate in being joined to Christ. But this is not the point of departure. That's not where we start with our will. But we're enabled by Christ. We're enabled by the gift of the Spirit. As Paul says, for the death that he died in 6, 10 to 11, he died to sin once for all. He died for all of us, for all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the reality, Paul says, now live it. And so what we should learn in the contrast between Romans 7 and 8 there is this human tendency to valorize suffering, to reify death and nothingness, which induces suffering. This is the form of failed human subjectivity. We need to be able to separate this out. We need to be able to say, hey, I don't need to do this. I don't need to suffer in this way. This is different. You know, There are the groanings of the spirit, the groanings of creation. But this takes on a very different tenor, a very different emphasis in chapter 8. Now, maybe, you know, both chapter 7 and 8 are different versions of creation ex nihilo. But in 7, the nihil, the nothing, serves as an abiding resource. That, that is, you're continually partaking of a kind of failed subject. You're channeling the force of negation and death as if this is life that's not life that's death and this suffering is at once tied to sin and it's a suffering the suffering from which we are saved we will suffer no doubt but there is a suffering that we need not participate in we need not be plagued by the gift of the spirit depicted in eight it brings about creation ex nihilo To bear directly. That is God gives us new life in Christ. So that the redeemed subject has life as a direct gift from God. And so that's where we begin. We begin with life, peace, the presence of God. As Paul says, this doesn't save us from suffering or all forms of suffering. But look at the way that Paul ends chapter 8. One of the most beautiful passages in scripture. Paul assumes at the end of 8 that this deliverance that we have, it saves from the suffering connected with the separation from love of God. So he's described in 7, oh, there is a suffering that does separate you from the love of God. But then look at 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But even in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This suffering does not conquer us. We conquer it. Verse 38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
0: Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth